Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray now that as we open your word, um, the deep, deep love of Jesus would be shown to be all that we need and the only place to put our trust. As Paul said, while so many people demand signs and wisdom, may we preach only Christ crucified. May we rest only in Christ crucified, that all glory would go to Jesus Christ, died and risen. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Trying to wear this microphone while you're holding a baby is like having a chew toy on your face. Don't tell Derek how much slobber is good on this already. Um, I would like to turn to Isaiah 30 and jump right into the first few verses of our passage, which do a great job of just setting up the context for us. So turn to Isaiah 30, and we will read verses 1 to 5 right away. Isaiah 30, verses 1 to 5. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at zone, and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people who cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace." These verses sum up the situation that's the backdrop of this cycle of prophecies, which we're right in the middle of this morning. So there's an imminent Assyrian threat. The Assyrian army is at the doorstep of Jerusalem, and God has assured his people through Isaiah that he himself has overseen this invasion, that he has brought this about to distress his people. God wants to wake them up from their love of idols, their addiction to pleasure, but God also assures them in the same breath that he will make sure this threat comes to nothing. The invasion will not prevail. His people just need to trust in them and be safe. And yet, what do they do in their distress? This distress from Assyria exposes just how faithless the people of Judah have become. They add to their sin. God sends a Syrian response to their sin, and what do they do? They increase their sin. They go and try and find help from Egypt. They send this envoy on this long, long journey through the wilderness of the Negev to try and ensure that a rival empire, Egypt, will come to their aid. So let's continue reading verses 6 to 14 of Isaiah chapter 30. An oracle on the beasts of the Negev, through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent? They carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. And now go, write it before them on a tablet, and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever, 
For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusion. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out amid and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. So Isaiah starts here prophesying not to the envoys who are traveling through the Negev, but to the animals who are watching them. He warns them, keep an eye for this party of fools that's coming through the desert that is toiling so much to try and get themselves a useless alliance laden down with gold. Maybe he's even inviting these lions and these fiery serpents to see if they can catch a lunch because feeding the animals of the wilderness seems like a more useful thing to do with these ambassadors than sending them down to Egypt. How does Isaiah know that this alliance with Egypt will be so profitless? Because of course, God ensures that it will be. God is going to judge their faithlessness by making sure that this alliance comes to nothing. But that's not to say that this was a really good idea which God somehow spoiled. God's judgment runs alongside. It works through the natural judgment that foolishness and sin brings upon itself. Look at those two analogies that Isaiah uses for this foolish alliance. On the one hand, it's like a pot that has been smashed until you can't even find a shard. God is actively wrecking their plans. But the other analogy is of a wall with a breach that can't support its own weight. It is the reason for its own destruction, its insecurity, its weakness. So you see here that God's judgment comes for sin by coming through sin. Isaiah says, Judah should have known, they should have known very well before they sent these people on this long journey through the Negev that Egypt's help was worthless. He calls Egypt Rahab who sits still. Rahab was the name of a mythological Canaanite monster, very much like a dragon. So to call someone a Rahab was to call them a troublemaker, an agitator, a great beast, a force to be reckoned with. But Egypt is Rahab who sits still, a ferocious beast which can't get up the initiative to get off the couch. Egypt talks a big game. Egypt looks like a big help. But it is ridiculous for Judah to assume that when they are actually in need, Egypt will be there when they are needed. But beyond Egypt's character as an obvious do-nothing dragon, Israel has better, clearer reasons to know why it is wicked to try and get help from Egypt. This is not necessarily God telling his people that they can never ask for human help, that you always need to look for divine intervention. We see other points in their history where God says, you need to entrust yourselves to these people. You need to seek out help. What's happening here is that God's people are desperately seeking protection from an empire that wants to rule over them, 
by submitting themselves to another empire. They are submitting to Egypt instead of Assyria, but they are not submitting to God. They are not submitting to their true king, trusting Egypt in a way that they were meant to trust God for help. The sinfulness of this was all the more exposed because of this particular empire. Egypt was a nation that God had clearly demanded in his law that his people never put their trust in. Deuteronomy 17, the king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. I'm sure many of you can put this together. You know, as the Jewish people should have known, why the law so strongly prohibited alliances with Egypt. Egypt was the enslaving empire from whom God delivered his people. To go back to Egypt was explicitly to reject salvation from Egypt. It was to ask that that salvation be reversed. We would like to choose slavery to worldly powers rather than fidelity to God. So even in Isaiah's day, Sending these envoys to Egypt represented that same sinful condition that you saw in those Israelites in the wilderness hundreds of years earlier who were grumbling whenever things got hard, who said, let's just go back to Egypt and be slaves there. These envoys, by taking the wilderness of the Negev, likely to avoid traveling through Philistia, are actually taking the Exodus road. They are actually walking back, reversing the Exodus to get to Egypt. They are submitting themselves to the enslavers from whom God had freed them. This is why, once again, Isaiah points out that the fundamental problem at the heart of this rebelliousness was a rejection of God's word. They were rejecting what they knew from God's law. They were rejecting God's warnings that they had already heard. What does he say? Go write on a tablet, inscribe in a book, make it known from time to come forevermore. This is a rebellious people, lying children, unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and the prophets do not prophesy what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions. Leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. After so many generations, for this people to still want to go back and entrust themselves to Egypt is an incredible monument to their lasting stubbornness, their refusal to learn. Thousands of years where as a people they could have been growing and maturing under the law and the prophets and they are still demanding the prophets and seers, don't teach us that law, we don't want to hear it. Tell us what we would like to hear. You'll remember that last week, Isaiah put, put most of the blame for this condition upon the priests and the prophets, the leaders of God's people who were so in love with their own sin that they themselves were incapable of teaching God's word. But now, you see, continuing in these prophecies, Isaiah shows the people themselves are definitely also culpable for this terrible condition. False teaching could never thrive if no one was willing to hear it. False teaching thrives because there are so many people eager to hear it. There is always an audience saying, can you please put down the law of God and give us some pleasant illusions? Give us a few happy lies. Give us smooth things. 
This term means telling people what they want to hear, flattering them, giving them the promises that they wish God made. Preaching that says it is all about God and then actually is all about us. This egocentrism, this self-confidence, this demand that even when God's word was being taught, it was in fact just words about us, illusions to make us happy. This is why as soon as there was a crisis, this people couldn't look to God. They could only look to human solutions. They could only look to slave masters in Egypt. Friends, even thousands of years later, thousands more years where the law could be taught and known, where the gospel has been clearly displayed, there are still so many Christians, so many churches, even those that are happy to say we are the conservatives, we're the evangelicals, where the preaching is entirely focused on smooth things and illusions. Sermon series on how to be a winner, how to live out your purpose, how to be the person you want to be. Tell me week in, week out, how the Bible is pointing at me. Make it a launching pad to talk all about myself. These churches look from the outside often like they're still so different from the culture around them. They've got all the cultural markers, they've got all the hallmarks of a good, steady, conservative, evangelical church. And then somehow, we're always so surprised when the trial comes, when the culture puts the heat on, or when something goes wrong, that suddenly they give in to the world that they, they seemed so opposed to. Suddenly, they're, they're teaching things that we thought just came totally out of the blue. Or suddenly, they are devoting themselves entirely to warring against the world. This is the goal every day. How can we fight? How can we make sure that we win? Suddenly, these churches are either aligning and capitulating with Assyria, or they are turning to Egypt as the only solution to Assyria. We're so often surprised when this crisis when this progressive frenzy around us, maybe when the debate around COVID exposes where the trust of these Christians, these churches really lie. We didn't expect them to so quickly change their view on marriage, become so obsessed with politics. Isaiah helps us here to diagnose the heart before the crisis that will expose the unfaithfulness. He helps us diagnose ourselves. Do we open the scriptures to seek out the teaching that we want to hear? Do we come to them asking for illusions, for smooth things, coming saying, this is what they're going to teach me? Or do we open asking God why he is glorious, why he is perfect, why his salvation is good? Is God only useful to you if he builds you up in the things that you already want for yourself? Is his word only useful if it can do that? Would you put it down after reading it, thinking that it had failed if it had not offered you the comfort and the uh, encouragement that you told it it had to give you? God uses the Assyrian crisis to expose this heart in his people, to expose that they were not interested in God as God. They weren't interested in the word as the word. He was calling them through this crisis to see themselves so that they could stop trusting in men, so that they could place their trust in him and in his better 
promises than even the things they desired for themselves. Let's continue reading chapter 30, verse 15, right to the end of chapter 31. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall you be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, no, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion. In Jerusalem you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, And in thick smoke rising, his lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one sets out the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every strike of the appointed staff the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of the tambourines and lyres. Battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them for a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready It's pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, 
as a lion or a young lion's growl is over his prey. And when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect it and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in the day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by the sword, not of man. And the sword, not of man, shall devour him, and he shall flee from the sword. And his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. The Jewish people, by, by putting their trust in Egypt, have exposed that their hearts are surprisingly similar to the hearts of their enemies. Their answer to the threat of Assyrian empire was to put their trust in the Egyptian empire. Their answer to the horses and chariots of Assyria were the horses and chariots of Egypt. Fleshly power, they answer with fleshly power. They have no interest in the help of the Lord. They see themselves as so different from Assyria. No, no, Assyria is our enemy. But their hope is in the same thing as the Assyrians. To them, Assyria and Egypt look like opposites. They're enemies, aren't they? But they are exactly the same. Again, Isaiah goes right to the heart condition that has produced this sin. Twice he mentions idols of gold and silver. Why did Judah need to be saved by Egypt rather than God? Because if God saved them from their enemies... That would include salvation from sin and idolatry. They needed salvation from Egypt because they were clinging to the things that Egypt said they would save them for. They weren't interested in the things that God would save them for, even salvation for himself. Why is it that so many Christians and churches who seem firmly rooted in tradition and culture so quickly capitulate to the world become obsessed with it, war over it, fight over it, cling to it, or depend on it, because their hearts were already sold to the same idols that the world around them worshipped. Even if we show that idolatry in different ways. We hate the world's idea of romance because we are so dependent upon romance. It is an idol that we demand of God or we despise Him. We hate the idea of the world managing our wealth, of collecting our equity, but we hate it because we are so obsessed with our finances and our financial security. We hate the way that the world is reordering society, the way that they are creating a new class system, but that's because we were obsessed with our place in society, with being respected, with being prominent. We hate the way that the entertainment industry is going because we need entertainment and they'd better provide it. In all these things, we agree with God about the evil of the world. We agree with God about the things that are going wrong, but we can't give these problems over to God because we are clinging to the same idols that we are pointing to in the world around us. We reserve the right when push comes to shove, when a crisis comes, to then ourselves 
pursue a romantic relationship that God would deem unwise, different than the sinfulness of the world around us, but still unwise. We reserve the right to hoard wealth or manage our money in a way that shows a lack of trust in God. We reserve the right to become obsessed with politics and activism, the opposite of the politics and activism of the world, but obsessed with those same things because we are paranoid about the way that society is going, because we cannot entrust those things to God. In this way, even though it looks so much like the world is our enemy, like we are standing on God's side, God has used that crisis to expose our own idols. Isaiah assures us all idols, Assyrian idols and Egyptian idols, will ultimately fail. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. Our human hopes always fail to deliver. Frankly, they fail to deliver on their own promises. They are Rahab that sits still. Loudmouth do nothings. But all the more will they fail to guard us against the coming judgment of the Lord. God promises judgment is coming for Assyria. Assyria will be crushed. But even then, he is looking ahead to that judgment that is coming for Assyria and Egypt and even those who claim to be his people who clung to idols. Isaiah uses analogies here for God which are powerful but dangerous. Powerful but frightening. God is a lion guarding his prey. He is a flock of carrion birds. And most often here we see God referred to as fire. Jerusalem is the place where his fire burns. This reminds us of the dangerous privilege of desiring to dwell near to God. Remember Isaiah last week called Jerusalem an aerial, the altar hearth. This is what Jerusalem is, the place where the fire burns. Remember way back to Isaiah 6, where the glorious presence of God was visible in burning angels. And we see that this fire burns up all unholiness. For us, this burning up can either be purifying or it can be punishing. In Isaiah 6, God's holy fire came from the altar and it touched Isaiah's mouth and his sins were atoned for. This is true for everyone whose trust is in God. But what does that fire mean for Assyria? What does it mean for his enemies? The fire of God's glory burns them up entirely. Drawing near to God to invade is climbing up their own funeral pyre. While the Jews are frantically wondering whether Egypt has enough horses, whether Egypt has the initiative to get up and protect them, God is so powerful that Assyria is going to burn up as soon as it comes near him. They will be consumed by his judgment. And Isaiah says that as God inflicts blows upon the Assyrians, they will become the beat of the victory songs of God's people. Did you see throughout this passage how quickly the day of judgment was juxtaposed with the day of victory and joy? 
how God brings those two together and shows that they are in fact the same day. It is through God's judgment that his people are established. The crisis and distress that exposes those who love their idols, the the crisis that destroys and judges those who are faithless is also the means by which God guards and preserves those who are his. The fire that burns up his enemies is the fire that purifies his people. It has always been through God's judgment that his people are saved. You see that in the flood. You see it in the plagues. You see it in the Passover. Here God's people are called to rest upon God, the rock of Israel, in the midst of his judgment that purges the Assyrian invasion. All of this points towards God's great and lasting judgment through which we are only spared if we rest upon his rock, if we rest upon the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Once again, this salvation is always through judgment. We see that Jesus bears that judgment in our place. We see that he takes that judgment on the cross so that when God's fire comes, it has already poured out its punishment upon Jesus and now for us, it can be an atoning fire, even a purifying fire rather than the fire of judgment. It is only because Jesus bore wrath for his people, that even here Isaiah can promise that the day of God's judgment, when it is in the time of Assyria, when it is for all time, will be for God's people a day of joy and peace. And even as Isaiah looks towards salvation from Assyria, he's increasingly looking forward to the salvation and hope that will touch every part of the world, building up to a glorious picture of a promised rest for the people of God where even the sun and the moon are increasing in brightness. The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. The light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. The fires of God's judgment are the same fires that are experienced by his people for their purifying God imposes judgments on his enemies, but we see that many of those blows are also received by his people. The distress that destroys Assyria also passes through Jerusalem. The blows that crush crush Assyria inflict wounds on God's people, wounds that God then binds up. These wounds are a part of his good plan. They carry us to our final hope, Because the road to victory for God's people, the road to eternal peace and the eternal Zion is through fire and pain. It is a fire and pain that God has sovereignly overseen. We know that this was his plan for Jesus, who went before us and bore a wrath and a pain and a fire that we will never know. Bore the full fire of the wrath that God's enemies experienced. And we know then that as we follow our older brother, that there is pain on the road for us. At times it looks like we are experiencing the same pain, the same blows that the world is experiencing, the very distress that many of us hoped, even demanded we would be freed from when we became believers. 
but it is because of Jesus that God gives us this pain not for our destruction, but for our good discipline. The fire Jesus bore for us is the reason that God's fires are purifying for us instead of punishing. Why does God allow this? Why does he sovereignly oversee it? How can Isaiah call the distress of Jerusalem the blows of the Lord? Because God is interested in our endurance. Because God is invested in bringing us to his promised place of rest. God looks at a people who are in love with idols, who only want to hear smooth talk about themselves, and he distresses them. He exposes those whose trust was only in idols, but he also wakes up those who are being tempted, who are looking at themselves rather than him. He pulls them out of their complacency and says, you will persevere. And then the day will come when God can bind up the wounds that are inflicted, where he can singularly focus his blows upon his enemies. And then those will be the final blows of destruction on the great day of judgment that eternally secures the place of his people, whose wrath was already borne by Jesus. What does this mean for us? What does it mean for God's people then and now? When the Assyrian is at the gate, when the world seems strong and dangerous, don't put your eyes first on the outside threat. Look first to God and then look to your own heart. When the things we idolize in this world are threatened, when a crisis exposes that we have still clung to wicked things, or that we've taken good things and we have turned them into idols and put them in the place God deserves, take that crisis as God's gift to you so that you can surrender those idols to him. So that instead of clinging for a little bit of delight in those things now, your eyes will be placed back upon God's eternal promises. This is painful work that God does in us, but it is good work. It puts God's, the choice that God puts to all of us clearly in front of our eyes. Give in to temptation and turn to Egypt. Depend upon worldly means, depend upon idols, or turn to God. Look upon him, rely upon him to deliver us from all our enemies. You might be feeling the weight of that choice right now. The pressure in the world is exposing your desire to hold on to the worldly things that you have, those things that you hope in, desperate to keep them. But God assures us to choose the idols of this world means frantic folly today and judgment tomorrow. The world is Rahab who sits still. It makes big promises. It's going to do a lot for you. This next election is going to fix everything. Everything's riding on this. This relationship will solve all of your anxieties. You will finally be happy. This financial plan is going to ensure that you can have that successful retirement that you depend on. Rahab who sits still. Those promises are empty. Even if you get everything that they tell you you can have, it will give you no lasting peace, no real hope. To cast your lot with the world is like Judah trusting Egypt. 
you will always be staring anxiously at those things that you love, those idols that you're trying to hold on to. You'll be wondering if you'll be able to keep them, if you can keep holding on to them, if you'll have them tomorrow. Will society remain stable long enough for me to die comfortably? Will my finances remain secure? Will my relationship stay fulfilling? This constant anxiety just grows as you are gambling with the world's plans to help you hold on to these things. And God promises us that this anxiety is just a foretaste of the judgment that is coming for all of those who have chosen to trust in idols instead of him. But on the other side of this, God is calling you to put your trust in him and rest. Judah could see this choice visibly put before them. To trust in Egypt meant a frantic race through the wilderness of lions and snakes to try and get help from Egypt. On the other side, they could look at the temple that was already near. They could be reminded that God was already here, that then they didn't have to journey, they didn't have to tra travel, they didn't have to race, they could rest. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling and you said, no, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. Judah was choosing frantic striving, which would only lead to more and more anxiety, rather than rest, which would lead to eternal quietness. To put your hope in Egypt meant swiftly riding upon horses into battle that would leave you swiftly riding upon horses of retreat. To hope for human salvation is to toil. They will always give you plans. Here is what you do. Here is the work that you have to perform. Here is the journey you have to undertake. Here is how you strive and it will just lead to more striving. Toil leading to more toil. The world's salvation will always put you to work, to get their help, to gain their approval, to hold on to what you're clinging to. You'll start to feel more and more how much these things are beyond your control, even as all you can do is work harder, put in this frantic effort that the world demands of you to make sure that you're secure, to make sure that you're happy and it will never be enough because it is Rahab who sits still. The promises are empty. They will never let you rest. But God is pointing you to a salvation which is already entirely accomplished, which rests on his character and his promises. Just like his people, then he's saying, leave your deliverance in my hands. It is already secured. Just rest in me. Just hand over those idols. Trust in me. He will deliver from every enemy, every crisis, unto eternal peace with him. This is the salvation that Jesus has purchased for you. This is a salvation you can rest in. I want to be careful here. This, this promise for rest is not just an emotional thing. Come to Jesus and feel better. We've seen here that God will often use times of distress for the sake of his people's perseverance. That is a good 
disciplining work. The primary rest that God is speaking of here is actual rest from striving. It is actually staying in the presence of God rather than running to Egypt. It is trusting in a salvation that has been accomplished instead of working to earn it. So you do not need to fear that Christ's salvation is somehow not working if you're not feeling good about it. The question is, do you trust in it rather than accomplishing your own salvation? But I also don't want to sell short here the invitation to enjoy the rest that God is offering us. When we preach the gospel to ourselves, when we remember what Christ has already accomplished, when we align our hearts with what is actually true, we can rest in the rest of Jesus. We can hand over our anxieties as we hand over our idols. And we can experience and enjoy resting in the promises of Jesus. Even in the midst of those trials, our faith and our joy and our peace can grow and be secured as we cry out to God in our pain. We can sing even in trials, even in dark moments, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled and strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. So even though we know that the ultimate feeling of rest, the ultimate enjoyment, the lasting eternal rest will not come until the final day of judgment has established it. We even now are invited to enjoy resting in Jesus. Rest from your frantic striving and your fear. Put down those idols that you are constantly working to try and hold on to. Rest in a salvation that God has accomplished for you. For people shall dwell in Zion. In Jerusalem you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. Even in the midst of the trial and affliction, God will be near to you. You can rest in him. Your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Rest as he leads you through those trials rather than striving with the world in the midst of every crisis. And then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean. You will say, be gone. I don't need you anymore because I have found rest in the Lord. And it is a rest that is greater than any promise you have even tried to make. It is a rest in the eternal Zion. Have you surrendered your idols? Have you said, be gone? Have you loosed your miserly grip upon the gold and silver, those same things that the world is hoping in, those things that are drawing you to keep putting your eyes on Egypt, on the salvations and gifts of the world? Lay them down, and you can lay down all the striving that comes with them, and as you look to God, you can rest. Wait upon the Lord. Wait and watch. Watch him accomplish all that is necessary and lead you safely into the heavenly kingdom. 
It will all be done because Jesus has already done it all. The kingdom is secured. Trust in him. Rest in him. The world's promises are all talk. Jesus is the one who offers you real, lasting rest forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that for those who are still striving frantically after idols, for those who still worship the same things as the world, I pray that they would see clearly exposed by the crises that you bring us, the utter failure of the world and its promises, just as you proclaim the utter failure of trusting in Egypt. May they say that no matter how big a game the world can talk, the promises it can make, it can deliver nothing and will lead us only to judgment. Father, I pray that those idols would be laid down and we would lay down the striving for our own salvation that comes with them. And I pray, Father, that if there are those who have not yet rested in Jesus, that they would rest in him by trusting in him, by rejecting those idols and saying, Jesus died for me. Jesus rose for me. Jesus reigns. Jesus will reign forever. It is all him and all been done by him. And I rest in him. And I pray for those of us who already know you, who already belong to you, Father, that when idols come to tempt us, when the world starts to give us anxiety, that we need to tighten our grip upon the things that it demands, Father, I pray that you would expose that in our hearts as well, so that we would never take our eyes off of you, so that we would rest in you. And I pray that we would even enjoy that rest that has been won for us by Jesus Christ, an enjoyment even in the midst of the trials and anxieties in this world as we hope for that wonderful day when all anxieties and fears and weeping will be cast away forever and we shall eternally enjoy your rest with you, with Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen.